Hello and welcome to the OT Schoolhouse podcast, your source for school-based occupational therapy tips, interviews, and professional development. Now, to get the conversation started, here is your host, Jason Davies. Class is officially in session. Hello and welcome back to another episode of the OT Schoolhouse podcast where we dive into the world of school-based occupational therapy and explore a wide range of topics that impact the lives of the students and the teachers that we serve. I'm your host, Jason Davies, and today we have a very special guest joining us today, Kelly Wilk-Downs, an occupational therapist with a passion for design and organization. Kelly is here today to share her expertise on the impact of a well-designed and organized space on an individual's well-being, specifically in the classroom environment. As an occupational therapist, Kelly understands the vital role that an optimized learning environment plays in the development and success of our students. Kelly has honed her skills through years of experience, working closely with teachers and administrators to design and organize classroom spaces that meet the unique needs of their students. Not only does she bring her knowledge as an occupational therapist to the table, but she also brings her fascination and love of home remodeling shows, which has influenced her approach to creating functional and aesthetically pleasing learning environments. It's like the school edition of the Home Edit Show here today. In today's episode, Kelly will be discussing her experiences with designing and organizing classroom spaces, emphasizing the importance of individualization based on the needs of the students. We'll also dive into the four main principles of the structured TEACH methodology and how it enhances the learning experiences for children, including those with autism. So let's get ready for an enlightening conversation as we tap into Kelly's vast knowledge and creativity. Join me in welcoming Kelly Wilk Downs to the OT Schoolhouse Podcast. Kelly, welcome to the OT Schoolhouse Podcast. How are you doing today? I'm doing great, Jason. Thank you for inviting me. Yeah, absolutely. It's uh, always great to have someone coming on with experiences in different areas of school-based OT. And, you know, what I love about school-based OT is that I also kind of hate it, but we have to know a little bit about everything. Like we can't just specialize in one thing, right? Like That's we right. could have a student that needs one type of support at 10 a.m. And then at 11 a.m., it's completely different, a whole different student. So today we are here to talk a little bit about setting up the classroom for success. We're going to talk about the structure of the desk, a little bit about setting up individual workspaces. And I'm excited to talk to you about that today. I am happy to be with you all, and hopefully we'll impart some good knowledge on your valuable listeners. Yeah. So to get us started today, why don't you just share a little bit about where you are in your OT career today? <laughs> yeah, I'm an old lady. Haha, <laughs> laugh out loud. No, time flies. Um, I am still very active, though. I am doing a lot of writing. I run two businesses. I staff charter schools. I've done that most of my career. Um, love the charter schools, do a lot of that. And I am developing courses and products right now. I'm doing a lot of writing. Wow. So, yeah. Awesome. Mm -hmm. I, I have to touch on that charters, that you've worked with uh, charters. I mean, that's very yes. different than working in a public school system. If you don't mind, before we dive into everything, just tell us about your experience within a charter school. How has that been slightly different from a normal public school? Yes, I love the charters. I love it because there's a little bit more autonomy. Um, you can, uh, but I've always liked about it, Jason, is being able to control your caseload a little bit more than the public schools. 
I remember my first job, I was um, a contractor and I had a caseload of 70 kids in 11 schools. And I just didn't feel empowered. And um, my father owned a school and was in the, is in the education business. And I knew that there were ways that I can control my environment a little bit more, being the entrepreneur that I am. So I peeled away and, and started working with the charters. And I've, I've loved it and never really looked back. In fact, I prefer that environment versus the public school. And when you work for a charter school, do you work for one specific school or were you still having multiple schools or how'd that work? Well, um, some of the charters now have really pretty large, significant uh, groups and um, a group uh, charter school may have 10 to 20 charters in a particular state. And once you figure out a model, you can duplicate the model and go just about any to any state um, within the company. So I have done a bit of that. I've had very significant contracts and then I've had smaller contracts and the smaller intimate charter schools are fabulous as well. So. Gotcha. Yeah, that's cool. Uh-huh. I know some people that listen to the podcast, they, they're in charter programs and they've actually reached out to me and they asked me for more information about working in a charter. And I just don't have that experience. So whenever someone mentions a charter, I always like to ask about it a little bit because I just don't know. So thanks for sharing that. Yeah, you you, you have to follow the same laws. Um, that's another project that I've started working on are the, the state laws and timelines for every state because we... Our hiring and, and, and management also, as well as managing um, some of the special ed requirements. So I'm delving into that as well as I am um, in, in my later years of my career. <laughs> we all got to so, learn. We all have to yes, learn at some point, yeah. right? Yeah, so, it's great. It's good. Awesome. Good stuff. Yeah. So I know a little bit about your background comes from working with the TEACH model, the T-E-A-C-C-H model, not T-E-A-C-H. And so I just want to ask a little bit about that experience. Sure. Yeah, absolutely. Um, my experience there, I, I that was one of my first contract gigs on my own, and I couldn't have picked a better spot. In all, in all honestly, I, I honesty, I was um, struggling a bit um, in my career, and the teach methodology w- was fantastic. Fantastic. They were very, very professional, and they just kind of laid it all out and spelled it all out, and it totally made sense when I was there. So let me back up a bit. I do want to say that the TEACH program is actually an acronym, and the program was developed in the 1960s, and it's based out of the University of North Carolina, Chapel Hill. And so the acronym stands for the Treatment and Education of Autistic and Communication Handicapped Children. It's also an evidence-based academic program. They offer extensive trainings and do a lot of research. So it's a great research-based program. Awesome. And so just because, again, I don't know much about the TEACH program, like, is it an OT-based program or is it was it founded like by academics and OTs kind of have now worked their way into the system a little bit? 
Yes, yes. So it's definitely an academic program, and it was first developed back in the 1960s by Dr. Eric Schopler and Dr. Robert Reichler. Um, and it was develop, developed in an academic setting. And so they train professionals. And of course, when you're there working um, in Chapel Hill Carborough City Schools, they encourage you to go to all of the trainings, which I did do when I was there. Um, it was exceptional. Um, they bring in speakers, Temple Grandin. That was very exciting. She was speaking when I was there. Um, and so they do encourage all the staff that are working with the students. You know, it's a methodology that you incorporate. And to me, it was very sane and rational. It was logical. It coincides with our English language and how we read. So it's a top to bottom, left to right presentation and how you're presenting materials to the students. Gotcha. Okay. And, and, as we dive into the TEACH model a little bit further, remind me, is this particular model designed for one population or can it be kind of more used widely? The TEACH uh, methodology can actually be used with various populations, um, and, and it definitely is. They they're using it with students that might require mild supports or students that require um more involved supports. Great. And so what are the main principles that we will be using within the TEACH model to help support all of those students within the schools? Sure, Jason. So there's four different areas that the TEACH methodology focuses in on. And the first one being the work systems. And that's where the student will know what work do I need to do? And also how much work do I need to do? And when do I know when I'm finished with my work? And then finally, most importantly, what do I do next? So the next piece of that, number two, would be the schedules, the visual schedules. And so using the schedule, it would be um, clearing up visually what, where do I go and what type of next now strip is appropriate for me to visually demonstrate how to complete the work. And then do I do I need the easiest, most developmentally quick system, which is the top to bottom format, or can I track from left to right? So it's very, it's a graded system. So for kids that might need that gradation, you definitely can structure it that way. So the third thing would be the material structure, and that is where does the child physically complete the work? And then the fourth thing would be the physical structure as to what happens within that space. The items might be on the left. Um, that's where the student's going to grab their work folders. In the middle would be their desk. And then to the right would be their finished pile. And so it's a very graded system. And uh, the teach method methodology does allow you to do that as a clinician. Awesome. Thank you for sharing those four. And okay. Yeah, moving forward, I know we're going to be talking a lot about that physical structure as we talk about classroom design, but as I listen to you talk about work systems and schedules and material structure, I think that all plays into the design of a classroom, right? Like not just the larger part of the classroom, you know, where the desks are set up, but also you know, how each individual activity is set up and are there visual schedules? What do the visual schedules look like? And so I'm excited to dive into all of that and to to dive into it more. What got you interested 
in designing or classroom design, I guess I can call it? Uh, anything to do with home remodeling. And uh, <laughs> <laughs> I, I love um, all of the shows, you know, just realizing that, you know, you're sometimes kids even notice that they're unhappy in their space or it doesn't flow well. And knowing that you can kind of go in and rip and tear and maybe slap on a coat of white paint or blue paint and, and totally change the environment or the physical structure by moving around furniture. Just knowing the power of that as an OT or even within my own home setting and knowing how I do best. I, I don't like a lot of visual clutter. I like color. So I've, I've been into that. My mom was a really good designer. She just had an innate flair and, and I kind of picked up on that. So I, I parlay that into the classroom setting. I I guess, Jason, you know, for doing this for like 30 years, right away, I could walk into a classroom and I could tell what wasn't working. You know, there's kids were throwing things. There were scents in the room. There were colors that were just aversive to me. And I, I don't know how kids can concentrate with things just being kind of spattered on the walls. So I would kind of go in and just look at that, you know, use my consultation and observation time to make suggestions. And I'd run home to my husband and say, you know, I think I could help this teacher. She's receptive. And we would work on design and layouts, um, you know, based on some, some of it coming from the teach I would pull from, but um, it all has to be individualized based on the needs of the students. So I really want to make sure that I'm saying that, you know, every, every, every classroom is different. Um, and a lot of times there's a lot of different types of students in the classroom. So you have to take all of that into consideration. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. And kind of going back to those early days when you started looking at the design of classrooms, you know, where, what was your experience with the teachers? You know, you, I know from my experience as an OT, right? You can't just walk into a classroom and say, Hey, you need to change this. So yeah. I want to ask you about those, those early experiences with teachers. How did you, you know, let them know, Hey, maybe we can do something to, to enhance this classroom. Yeah. Yeah. So I guess, you know, my big takeaway from the TEACH program is how it made me feel as a professional. Things were organized, um, clean lines, structured, and I just felt at ease. I'm, I'm very on top of things that I do as a professional. And so I would kind of talk to the teachers about, hey, you know, it doesn't have to be like this. You know, I see that Johnny over there is throwing things or Sally needs a sensory station. And a lot of times new teachers would be in the thick of it and they wouldn't even really understand. Um, and they'd be like, oh, Kelly, come back. You know, they would be just, you know, dying for this information. And we'd change a few things around and I'd kind of smile and I'd say, yeah, the power of it, you know, putting dividers and pulling this out, adding some soft music, it just making people happy. So it's the relationship, you know, it's the experience, it's being a seasoned clinician. I do talk to a lot of older OTs and they say the same thing. They're like, great course, Kelly, great idea. I wish I could do it. <laughs> so I, I know I know that there's a need and, and I know that the younger ones really appreciate it. So I guess my wisdom and my years of doing this and, and loving design and knowing the power of it um, is beneficial to the teachers and the administrators. 
Yeah. Yeah. And I like to point out the quick win um, oftentimes yeah. when I'm talking about working with teachers. And so what are a few, you know, quick wins that you have gotten through with teachers that kind of give them that trust in you that you can show them, you know, just in a few days that what you have to say is actually beneficial? Well, they'll notice, you know, behaviors, um, they'll, they'll notice them decreasing, I should say. Um, they'll notice that the students can sit longer, finish their work. Um, you know, you give them the sensory input that they're craving, you calm the colors down, you take away the sense. There might be an aversive scent that's going on in the room, the plugins, for instance. Um, and and the, the student's not even able to articulate that that's the real problem. But, you know, having the sensory integration background is also very beneficial. I pull that in as well. So I do a lot of checklists and um, I'm also developing one that's going to coincide with a classroom design course that we can share with both parents and teachers, give them a checklist of things that they just to make them more aware so that they notice what's working and what's not working in the classroom. So I would say that the quick takeaways are, you know, behaviors decreasing, the sensory aversions um, diminishing, and just the ability to follow through and complete work, work tasks. Yeah, I, I think there's a lot of teachers out there that would love to see those three things um, happen, <laughs> <Yes>. right? <laughs> oh, definitely, definitely. All right. So we're going to spend the rest of the podcast really talking about the classroom design and the development of a classroom design. And I want to kind of, I think, start large picture and okay. work our way down to narrow. And so starting with the large picture, let's talk about the design of a classroom, the layout of a classroom. Are there some things that OTs should know that they can relay onto their teachers? Absolutely. Absolutely. So TEACH has a great pyramid, and in our course, we really included this because it really is all about the physical structure. It's the environment um, and the layout. And TEACH uses a lot of work carols, but that's not the only thing that they use. So it, it's very simple. It's the, the top to bottom and left to right. I will provide some of your listeners um, some good slides so that they can see this. My husband and I kind of worked on this. Um, they're very intricate and they're they're easy to understand. So everything is um, left to right. Your work is going to be on the left to the student. The student's going to have their own little separate white carol, no visual clutter, white walls or cream walls or blue in the classroom, soothing colors. And they'll do their work at their station, their, their carol. And then when they're finished, there's going to be a finished folder. And after the students usually finish with their work, they'll get some downtime if necessary. So it's very, very structured and it makes sense. It makes sense to the professional going in, to the teacher. And in fact, what you notice after a while is that that just hums. <laughs> it just goes on autopilot um, for a lot of the students. You see the kids, oh, okay, here's my schedule. I, I know exactly what I'm supposed to do. The teacher or the, the teacher's assistant can check on the students you know, look at their, their their work to see if it's completed and um, move on. It, it, it's just very, very good. It's just a checks and balances system. Gotcha. And I know right now with the age of Common Core, whether you're in a state mm -hmm. that uses Common Core or not, mm -hmm. you can't get away from the idea that right now there's an emphasis within education to have a lot of group activities. And 
I think that has led to a lot of classrooms, and, and this isn't really new, but a lot of classrooms you see groups of students. You see four desks that are all pointed toward each other. How is is that similar, or is that very different from the teach methodology of a classroom design? Well, teach looks at, it depends on the amount of support. So this can be done. You can put the kids in pods for sure. So what I'm talking about with the work carols would be students that are more distracted. They kind of need like the white walls. They need it quiet. They need to be able to focus. So after you've gotten them through the system and they're a little more independent and they're on autopilot, you can definitely, and we want to be doing that, you want to be grouping them with the kids. So on some of the slides that we've done, you know, they might need independent work for harder subjects like math, um, science, what have you. And then for your crafts or your writing, whatever, you, you, you can also look at other options. So when designing a classroom, you want to have both options for sure. Great. And the other thing that I think about when, especially if I think about younger grade classrooms, you know, we have circle time, we have carpet time. And I just want to ask you any kind of tips or any suggestions maybe for an occupational therapy practitioner out there that, you know, has a kid that's doing okay when they're at their desk, but as soon as they get to circle time, Maybe they're all over the place or whatnot. Uh, yeah, that's that can be a tough one because it could be sensory things or primitive reflexes that are still hanging around. Yeah, sure. You you definitely can use like colored carpet squares for the younger students. Um, you can use different kinds of seating for students, giving them a schedule that, that carries with them that they can bring to different stations. Um yeah, social stories to talk about how, um, you know, what, what the expectations are, what's going on with the, the activity in the classroom, those kinds of things I would pull in. Great. Yeah. And the younger ones are harder, though. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, they, they like to get a lot of movement in. And... Definitely. And you, you got to give it to them. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So you mentioned some checklists and whatnot. And you know, I'm here in California. The teach model is definitely not a common phrase out here among OTs, among teachers, right. among anyone. But if I go into a classroom and I'm thinking we got to do something about this classroom design, I guess, you know, when I'm working with an individual student, I do an evaluation. Mm -hmm. Do you do an evaluation of a classroom per se before you want to make some adjustments or do you use the checklist or what does that look like? Yes, we have some checklists that I've developed that we kind of have the teacher and the parent do, and we're, we're just extrapolating information, like what, what works in the home environment, what are they doing at home? So when you're at the TEACH program, they hire consultants, and they, they have a system there. I think that when I was there, there were like 100 families on it, and you can partake in the TEACH consultants coming to your house, and I've done that as well. You would label, visually label um, how to take a shower, you know, don't miss behind your ears. We would laminate the, sh the shower routine. Um, you could put um, the visuals on the kids' drawers, color code their, uh, their, their clothes that they're supposed to wear for the day. So that was the great thing about the program. It was both 
in school and they were doing the same thing in the home environment. Everybody needed to be on board. And I think that's why it works so beautifully. I should say too, that in that area, dual PhD parents, they moved there for the services, but that wasn't always the case. And, you know, it's just, there was a draw and attraction for families to move there for the structured teaching for the students. Mm -hmm. And then when you moved beyond the TEACH program, though, mm-hmm. how did – I mean, we talked a little bit about getting a teacher on board, per se. Yes. But did you do any sort of formal evaluation, per se, on this classroom before implementing some of these changes? Or was it just kind of little bit by little bit you implemented small and increasingly larger changes? That's absolutely right. So there's no formal assessment tool that I'm aware of, although that's yeah. a good idea um, for classroom design. So I just pulled from my my past experience and my love of the classroom design and what works and what doesn't work over the years. I do a lot of talking with other seasoned therapists as well. And Little by little, I don't think you can go in and totally, you know, rip and tear a classroom. I don't think any teacher or students, you know, are going to appreciate that <laughs> if, if they just don't. Yeah. If there's no funding to do it, you know, you, and you certainly don't want the paint smell in the classroom, like those things need to be done over the summer. So I would just, I wouldn't, you know, I would bite off little chunks and present it to the teacher because that's all that could be reasonably done. Subtle changes over time. Absolutely. And that's what, that's what worked the best with the teacher. She didn't, you didn't want to rub the teacher the wrong way. They're, they're struggling. They're having a hard enough time, just little bits of information. That's all anyone can take in. It's a gradual um, thing or learning about all of this. So. Yeah. And kind of going off of that, you know, none of us are perfect. We make mistakes. Have you ever put something in place and then you come back two weeks later, maybe two months later, and realize something's not working? Um, if you have that experience, go ahead, share. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And what you what you do is you kind of hyper focus on the student that's on the IEP that you're tending to, but you really need to use your observational skills and look at all students and. A teacher knows her students in the classroom if she has 10, 12, whatever, in a special education setting. You really need to sit down with them and talk about, okay, if we make these changes, how is it going to either impact the other students in the classroom, either in a positive or negative way? So um, knowing that we can make errors or mistakes. I try to avoid it. And I really try to think ahead and ask the teacher how it may impact the other students. Those are questions that need to be asked ahead of time before you change things up, so to speak. Yeah. Have you ever experienced where, you know, you saw Johnny over here and you knew Johnny (laughs) was going to benefit from one thing, but then maybe Sabrina on the other side of the classroom may actually not benefit from that thing that Johnny needs. Has that ever happened to you? Absolutely. Yeah. And that's where you need to like partition and section off and have good schedules with the students or maybe even have the class or the student that might find something averse that exit the situation or do her mainstream or go out for specials. You really have to plan out in advance. Um, A good teacher, as we all know, is very organized and a great OT is the same way. And a seasoned person 
is, you know, pulling from your experiences and asking a lot of questions and really thinking about how this is going to affect everyone. So, yeah. And one thing that you recently introduced me to was a cool tool that can help teachers and OTs, occupational therapy practitioners, to develop a plan for a classroom, a a layout for a classroom. And so um, would you mind sharing a little bit about that? Sure. Yeah. This is um, something that I I found. It's uh, Kaplan is what it's called. Kaplan Co. Company. It's an early education company. And they do sell a lot of their own equipment. But it's the closest thing that I found to architectural software that I could use as an OT. Although it's early education, they have infant and toddler rooms. You might use that for like a church um, environment to up, up until preschool levels. But it gives you a, a good idea of different layouts and you can definitely experiment with that. And then what I was doing too, to be honest, was I was using graph paper and and sketching out and just, you know, taking a lot of pictures, going to the internet and doing layouts and then showing this to to the teacher. Of course, they have to buy into it. Sometimes it goes above that as well. And, you know, just the the physical structure and layout and and colors and and getting into the psychology of all of that. So usually people are very interested. The teachers seem to be very receptive to all of this. That's what I was going to ask you is, is how can an OT even kind of, if an OT goes and plays with this, because they know that the classroom that they go into every Monday has 12 kids. So they go in and say, all right, I need 12 desks, whatever. You know, do you have any recommendations for maybe how they might present a layout to a teacher. Yeah, yeah. So you definitely can use this software. And I should say I've done quite a bit of research and there's nothing really on the market that I can see. So, hey, you OTs that are married to architects, this is something that we could definitely would would be beneficial to us. Developing a software for middle school and and high school students is how to lay out a classroom. That would be beneficial, would be great. So, you know, you could definitely dive into this. There's a few other options. If you Google it, there are some basics out there. It's very... um, uh, you know, plants, um, it's not really user-friendly. So the Kaplan software is a little bit more user-friendly. But I should say that, you know, it's tied to their products, but it, it's kind of fun, though. It, it gives yeah. you a, a good place to start. Do you ever sit down with the teacher and kind of play around with this together, or do you typically do it on your own and then bring it to the teacher? Or a little bit well, of both? Yeah, a little bit of both. I think it really depends, you know, if the, how if the teacher's struggling, um, you know, and I, I do share uh, the, the teach methodology and, and show the courses to see if there's an interest. But of course, you know, that needs to be supported by administration as well. And there's a lot I can do without even going there with them, you know, just changing up the design and pulling things off the wall and taking the plugins out, the very basics. You can do a lot with just the basics. So, gotcha. Cool. Yeah. All right. Now, you mentioned the workstations a little bit earlier, and I want to dive deeper into that because I know there's multiple components of the workstations. You have the the different tasks, the way you set that up. You have visual supports. You've got potentially social stories and strips and whatnot. So let's just start with the visual supports that you might use at an individual workstation. Um, what are some different types of visual supports? 
Okay, awesome. Yeah, so I learned this as well that, um, you know, it needs to be also, it's graded as to how you would present information. It depends if a student's reading, not reading, what have you. So the the first thing that you would want to do using the teach methodology um, for students that are very disorganized, you know, a lot of times it's preschool, you want to teach them that there's a give and take It's the first then strips. And we used a lot of pictures of real objects. It's the most concrete. So first, you know, you have to do your math puzzle. And then after that, you get to play on the computer. Um, So it's very, very basic. First, you do this. Then you get something that you desire. Does that make sense? Yep. Yeah. Pretty basic. I think everybody knows this stuff, though. And then you could move on to pictures. So a little little more abstract would be a picture. So for me, you know, I might have like, first, we're going to do therapy putty, then we're going to do our scissors, then we're going to work on the lacing sequence. And those could be real pictures. And I, I, I would use maybe a top to bottom format um, in that regard. And setting it up that way for the students because they're non-readers and they're just able to follow pictures. And then moving on um, a little bit more advanced for students that are beginning to read that could track left to right, I would set up the work strips in in that realm. Hmm. And then... Yeah. Yeah. And then for the higher functioning kids, you know, just a schedule, just, you know, written words, you know, this is what I'm going to do. And then you would have the kids, you know, check off, done, completed. Voila. Those are your readers. So awesome. Okay. And then, yeah, how I know within the teach model. So this is not obviously like most of the OT practitioners that listen to this podcast they have never heard of the teach model or maybe they've heard of it, but they're definitely not working in schools where everyone knows about it. And so coming from that idea where the teachers don't understand visual schedules necessarily, or at least all the different types, what recommendation would you have for an occupational therapy practitioner that wants to help their teacher to better understand the visual schedules and implementing them? Should they recommend a training or should they do their own training or how might they start to support (laughs) teachers with visual schedules? Well, you know, that's awesome. OT is taking courses on this and then bringing the information back. Teach has a lot of great courses. There's there's a lot of good courses, though, even by special educators. This is not only a teach thing, um, the schedules. There's a lot of people putting on courses. So surely, you know, the Internet has great information. Um, you can Google and research schedules. You're going to get a lot of wonderful pictures, pictures worth a thousand words. Just bring it in very simple, you know, just like one on one piece of paper or do your, or create your own work folder, laminate it and then show the teacher. Hey, what do you think about this? And then try it out with the students, with the teacher around to make sure that it's beneficial, um, that the student likes it and then it makes sense for everyone involved. Yeah. And I like to personally, I like to address this in multiple ways, whether it's visual schedules or something completely, completely different. It could be fine motor or something. It could be sensory processing, something doesn't matter. I like to address it from multiple different angles because people, A, they need to hear it multiple times and B, they all learn differently. So um, personally, 
I might try and set up a training, a, you know, for all the kindergarten teachers. And then I might also try and go into the classroom a little bit. Mm -hmm. Sorry if there's some noise in the background. I've got a dog and a crying baby over here, but I don't, I can't hear it at all. (laughs) All right. Sounds like a sleeping baby to me. (laughs) (laughs) But uh, yeah, so that's one way that I like to do that is to come about it from multiple angles. And Mm -hmm. does that, does that ring a bell with you at all? Or, or... I, I have absolutely done that. Yes. I, I just, I really do like giving the courses and and having like the Q and A. I do a lot of examples. I just, I don't know. It's just my style. I, I like show and tell. I'm a show and tell girl. I love show and tell when I was a kid, you know, coming to the presentation and giving them ideas and showing them different ways to set things up and leaving samples for the teachers. I think that works best. Yeah. Agreed. Agreed. I think we need to, instead of, instead of giving teachers more work, we need to model for them and show them how to use it to make it easier. The last thing we need to do is to give them something else to figure out. True. True. Yeah. I come prepared and I just, it's what I did with my products that I develop. Everything's all done, you know, and and people appreciate that, you know, teachers have enough to deal with. They want to see the finished product and they want to see you using it and how successful you are. And then they're on board. They're going to buy into it a lot easier. Yep. All right. Another part of that workstation process I know are the shoebox tasks. And so I want to ask you about those and you know, it's obviously not just about shoe tying. Uh, maybe there might be one for shoe tying, but tell us about the shoe box tasks. Yeah, you definitely can do um, shoe tying and a shoe box task. So that was one of the things, boy, I just was so mesmerized when, when I was there with my time at the teach program. And I actually met the couple, um, Ryan Larson is the gentleman who came up with the shoe box task. And it's like a self-containment system. It's um, they actually use shoe boxes, and then they they took off with your business. They have a real factory now, and they sell them. They're hard plastic now, and they have activities for the students. And they even go into like the vocational realm. And to me, like this was the fun part. I was um, kind of like the Martha Stewart OT. You know, I just loved activities. I loved the crafts. I loved designing. I love color. That's why I chose OT instead of PT as well. And I liked the compartmentalization. I think that's why I developed my shoe tying program too. I I saw that how that worked. So, you know, everything um, that's presented in in a, like a clear defined package, that that is what the shoe box tasks are all about. And they can be pretty simple, um, collating, separating, counting, um, color differentiation, or they, you know, they can go to a higher level skill, um, job preparedness, vocational tasks. So there's different things that that company um, can do with their product. Yeah, I, <laughs> yeah, I've I've become familiar with those. I didn't know that this okay. is where they came from, uh, yeah, but I have been yeah. in a few different classrooms where they've had those hard plastic bins, mm-hmm. and there is a specific square cutout where everything yeah. will fit into and there's a cup on the other side with the the blocks and it's a simple well you know simple is relative but it's a task where the student takes the block out of the cup and puts it into the block but then you get a hole or into the the square whatever cutout but then you get to the next shoe box and it's completely different it's the same yeah. concept in a sense that right. it's still the hard plastic 
but it's a completely different activity. Now, my one gripe with this, at least in the program that I was at, is that all the pieces went missing. There was never, uh, like there was, I, I mean, not all the pieces, I should say, but it's like having a toddler around the house, right? You can never find all the pieces to a toy. Um, uh, but yeah, you know, it's it's a great concept in the sense that the student, it, it gives them one thing and they know what that expectation mm-hmm. is. So Right, right. Yeah. yeah, I think the company does sell extra pieces and parts though. And um, when I started going to like the New York City Toy Fair, I was always talking about that. I would ask them, hey, do you sell extra dice? Do you sell extra game pieces? Um, yeah, that's a real problem with kids and students, especially students that are, you know, disorganized or on the spectrum or yeah, it's it's more challenging. You got to keep up with the pieces and parts because uh, it doesn't make sense to the kids. You know, you might get an autistic student that might perseverate. Hey, you know, there's a there's a piece of the thing, and then you're at a loss. So, yeah, you don't want to give those students some. Um, you want to make sure that it's um, all together and all the all the supplies are are there for the students. Yeah, I can imagine some of my students in the past <laughs> that if there were three blocks yesterday and there's only two today. <laughs> You would they're, never hear the end of it. No, they're going to notice. They're, they will yep. tell you. <laughs> yep. All right. Um, another, another. I mean, we've got a few more things before we wrap up, but you've mentioned okay. social stories and yeah. strips types of, um, you've already talked a little bit about strips in the relationship to visual strips or visual schedules, but what about social strips? Yeah, social stories was developed by Carol Gray. I mean, you can just see that the the enrichment that I had when I was there. I was in, introduced to social stories, and I saw how well that worked. Writing a story about, like, for instance, going to get your hair cut, the students could really relate to that. We would talk to them and read the story. I would do a lot of groups with kids, and we'd have them around the kidney bean sh- uh, shaped table. I really worked aggressively with a speech language pathologist, Gretchen Stitzinger. I will never forget her because every week, you know, we we came up with a, a great group, and and she really made me a better professional. She really did. Um, she eased off of me even and said, okay, are you ready to do this on your own? And I just, I took off when I was there, but, um, yeah, it, it's the structure, it's the planning. And we used, um, comic strip, um, comic strips, basically, you know, and, and there's even software that you can use to design that. If you look on the internet, there's a lot of people that are in the, the comic book industry and, a lot of kids are attracted to that, and you can design um, strips, um, conversations for the student. I guess it all depends on the individual student and what they're interested in. Um, when I was there, it might have been Thomas the Tank Engine, what have you, and we would pull from those types of books and set up the activity. I was cutting out things from children's books in order for them to relate. You know, we were trying to appeal more towards their um, their interests. You, you always have to figure out what they're interested in and set up your activities that are appealing to them. So, yeah, I know I actually had a thesis group and I think I've talked about it on the podcast before, but I had a thesis group at Stanbridge University down here in Southern yeah, California great. and their project, they went above and beyond with it. They actually created a choose your own adventure social story ah. for kids at that early elementary stage when they start to take tests. They found research about the anxiety that students have when they're about to take a test. And so they created about a 20-page social story book um, for kids who are taking 
a test. And, you know, yeah. it's like you wake up in the morning. Do you have a nice good breakfast before a test or do you eat a sugary bar? And, yeah. you know, the kid makes that choice. Do they which one do they choose? Right. So, yeah, yeah. I, I think visual supports and visual stories, social stories have come a long way. And even yes. Canva can make it very simple for someone just to go on and make a very simple social story really quickly. Yeah. And hey, that brings up something. Canva also has some software to design a classroom. It's pr- pretty basic, but they, uh-huh. they do have something. Oh. So for your listeners, if they want to go in that realm and they know how to use Canva, they, they have classroom design software in there. Wow, I did not know that. And yeah. really quickly, quick, um, I, I don't know, but Canva okay. is free for educators. If you use a <sighs> education, ed, a school district email, you can okay. get the Canva education platinum, whatever they call it for free. Mm. So uh, check out Canva. Yeah. That's a good tip. Awesome. I love it. All yeah. right. So we've talked about visual supports. We've talked about shoebox tasks. We have talked about some social strips and whatnot. What are just a few other things that maybe in a classroom we should be looking for that might impact function, behavior, and all the good, all that good stuff in a classroom? Sure. Yeah, absolutely. So those things I would definitely suggest would be like lighting. Um, that is very um, impactful to the students. Um, fluorescent lighting is just never a good thing in my, my experience. Natural light is always the best. So in our course that we were working on, we, we talk a lot about lighting, um, adjustable lighting, the state-of-the-art lighting that they're using now. Um, it's a little bit more expensive, um, and, and most older schools and classrooms are just set up with the stock fluorescent lighting. But of course, you can put covers on that. You can play with the window, you know, move students around the, the window to get them closer to the natural light. Um, all of that's good. You know, the, all the OT things that we might use, like the sunglasses, um, uh, you could use different overlays to tone things down. And of course, you know, looking at the classroom, the color um, and how color bounces off the walls, how light affects that, you know, doing research on all of that is beneficial. Some of that information we've included in our course. Other things, another big area would be um, the acoustics. Um, you know, some classrooms are really loud. What can you do to buffer the, the loudness in the classroom? Well, there's things that you can put in the ceiling. You can um, have wall-to-wall carpets. There's different types of carpets that you can use on the floor. And um, yeah, there's different installments that you can use. There's separators that have like padding, acoustical padding in them. And that that can be beneficial as well. I haven't honestly played around with that a lot. I usually, because of the expense, you know, I don't I never wanted the administrators getting mad at me. <laughs> um, sometimes it's hard to justify when you can put um, noise canceling headphones yeah. on a student. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I I have had a few teachers that have bought some of those noise canceling panels and put those okay. up. Yeah, I can only imagine yeah. going to an administrator. My wife yeah. is an assistant principal. I can only imagine going to her <laughs> and recommending let's put in nice thick carpet in every classroom. Like that is not going to fly. No, um, the know. custodians would also not be happy. <laughs> no, I know. Yeah, a, a gum and a candy nightmare. Exactly. It's just- Food stuck in the carpet. Yeah. <laughs> but there are some simple things that we can do, you know, like yeah. those acoustic panels. Mm-hmm. One of my biggest gripes was always, especially nowadays with uh, all the things going on in the world, is that we're seeing 
a decrease in windows in classrooms. Mm, um, some of my right, schools, yeah. even when they were built in the 80s, their mm. the window is just like a 10-inch wide strip from the top of the ceiling down to the bottom of the floor. That is the one window in the entire classroom. <laughs> Yeah, and if, if they can do anything, and that's what I recommend is getting more natural light. It, it's just getting closer to nature and having an open window situation. If a school, if that is the one thing that you can work into your budget, I would say get a bigger window. Absolutely. Because the kids need that natural light. They just do, it just affects the mood. It's just, it's just a wise thing to do. And that's really where I would start. And from a construction standpoint, and talking to contractors, that's one of the easier things to do, oh, really? actually. Yeah, hmm. and cheaper. Yeah, is um, get in a bigger window if, if at all possible. Huh, good to know. And, yeah. you know, there's a lot of things that school districts can do to remain safety conscious while putting in a larger yeah. window. I mean, you can make sure that the windows are reflective. You can make sure that they're high quality windows, maybe even bulletproof windows. I don't know. I'm sure that yeah. increased the cost, but mm -hmm. it's definitely something that can be done. So, yeah. Yeah. And just, you know, doing your research, talking to the superintendent, talking to the construction crew prior to doing any remodeling. You know, if an OT can be involved in that and offer some really beneficial input, I mean, you know, it's, it's very warranted and it's a great thing to do is to share our background and experience. It's just hard to tie in sometimes. And it's... um you know, our bosses or our department, you know, is always worried about how we spend our billable time. But if you're doing it under a consultation model um, or the school is requesting it, you know, maybe they can make time for us to offer uh, this information where we can do a little more research uh, and help out. And that is where I'm going to plug that. <laughs> That is part of the reason that occupational therapy practitioners need to be able to move into administration at school districts, whether yes. you need a credential or you don't need a credential. I know I have been pretty vocal about my desire for California occupational therapy practitioners to get a teaching credential, mostly mm -hmm. so that we can move into administration through an administrative credential so mm -hmm. that we can have more impact in this way. I know that is very different state to state. In some states, mm -hmm. OTs can already be administrators if they go through the work. But yeah, sorry, little shameless plug there about something that I'm very passionate about. No, that that's a fabulous idea. And I think I think like more seasoned therapists would hang with it a little bit longer if they could use their wisdom and their years of experience to work with administration. I think that they would feel more beneficial. A lot of times, you know, you just kind of want to get out of the system because it's the system is broken. The way that it's mm -hmm. set up is just not it doesn't work for everyone. And, you know, I, I, I talk to a lot of seasoned therapists and they just want out, but yet they still have so much wisdom and they want to share their knowledge. And um, how do you tie into that? So it's beneficial for everyone. Mm -hmm. That's and a good idea, Jason. Really good. idea. I, I mean, <laughs> it, it's, it's a little bit of a shame that, that none of us yeah. can work for an occupational therapist or an occupational therapy assistant, even, like I, I will never have as a school-based OT. I will never have an administrator above me, unless you work in LA USD or a few other districts where they mm -hmm. figured it out. But I will never have an administrator above me that understands fully occupational therapy because they are an occupational therapy practitioner. And even in that sense, like we need, even if I didn't want to get into administration, which at this point I don't, mm -hmm. it would be nice to have OTs at that level 
to support yes. us from the top and also to be able to be in the room when decisions about new schools being built are are present. And, you know, when a school's being renovated, even if they aren't the person to share with the superintendent something about carpet and acoustics, they can say, hey, OTs know this. Let's bring right. in one of our OTs to talk about this more. So. Yeah. And it's always like we feel that if you're not useful in the system, you exit the system and you mm -hmm. do your own thing. Well, you might not always be successful. You know, there's something to be said about the structure of a school district or even a charter school. Group. They're very receptive. That's why I like it, by the way. <laughs> Yeah, I, I found that to be true. Um, they're willing to try innovative ideas and concepts. They'll listen a little bit more. Um, the administrators in the public schools are always looking at the bottom line and productivity. And we always go back to that. And it, it's a seasoned person wants to get away from that. You know, that's not what they yeah. want to do. So, yeah, yeah. There, there's definitely room. Someone needs to be speaking up about this. I think Miss Jamie is talking a lot about that, too. Yeah, yeah, she's yep, Miss yeah. Jamie's doing a lot in New York, yeah. and um, I'm out here doing some of it in California, along with our okay. Occupational Therapy Association of California. Um, and there are some states where you can already become an administrator, but hmm. uh, yeah, it's, like it's what states do you know of where you can oh, do gosh. that? Just off the top of my head, yeah. I want to say potentially Washington State, oh, but that's because the okay. OT practitioners there have to get. A an extra little bit of credential to work in the public schools. Yes. Yeah. I, I'm blanking on some of the other states. Some of the states don't necessarily require an administrative credential for administrators. And okay. so in that case, they might be able to get there. But it's it's there a are very few states that it can happen. And there's even mm -hmm. fewer OT practitioners that have made it to administration. I know some mm -hmm. OT practitioners that have gone back and got a teaching credential simply so that they could work their way up into administration or a school psychologist credential for the same reason. And nice. I did the math. It would have taken me eight years to become uh, an administrator. <laughs> so, yeah. yeah. But anyways, mm -hmm. yeah, again, OTs, administration, we need to make it happen. But back on to course a little bit. Okay. It's time to wrap up, but I want to okay, give you great. one last opportunity to kind of just share a little bit about you and your course where people can learn more. You mentioned a lot about a course, so I'd love to hear more. <laughs> yeah. So I am, if, if if people haven't heard of me, I'm the Shutai Made Simple Lady. <laughs> they always know me as Kelly Shutai. It's funny. I, I developed the product initially when I was working at the TEACH program. I had um, dual PhD parents. I had a particular family that we were sitting down at the table and it was very formal there as well. Um, Parents were really giving a lot of input on the goals. A parent came and she dutifully had her, her list. And she said, I would like for you to, to work on shoe tying. I'm just very frustrated with this. I thought about it and I thought, oh, this is a good challenge. I've got my digital camera. I know the teach methodology. I've got a system. I can do this. So I really did. I took off. I even worked with a, um, out of Chicago, I found a manufacturer that stitched together the laces for me. And they were spectacular, actually. And I had a flip bound book. And it worked so well that everyone, you know, that in an administration said, you need to write out a book or develop a product. So over the years I did, it, it evolved. We had different colors. 
we were in the toy market, an exhibit at the New York City Toy Fair, kind of pulled back on that. I used COVID to write my course. Um, I just thought, you know, I really need to, to get it out to my, my people, the therapists. And so I did do that. And it's available. It's through Thinkific. And um, it's a great product. It works well. Um, I've gone into Nordstrom's and um, we're also writing a course in Offshoot, how to conduct your own classes in a camp. And uh, we're looking to pair up with a, a major children's shoe manufacturer to partner to see if we can get something going in that regard as well, Jason. Very cool. Well, awesome. Yeah. Thank you so much for joining us, Kelly. And I'm looking forward to uh, to seeing more courses come from <laughs> from you and and everyone. It sounds like you're working with a few people, which is even better. Yes. Collaborations are always yes. awesome. So thank you so much for coming on, sharing a little bit with us about classroom design and look forward to keeping in touch. Thankful and I'm grateful for the opportunity. And I am I'm hoping that um, it's educational and beneficial to your listeners. Absolutely. Okay. All right. Well, that is going to wrap up episode number 128 of the OT Schoolhouse podcast. Thank you so much to Kelly for coming on the show and sharing just a lot about how we can purposefully help teachers design their classroom to enhance that student's success. Be sure to check the show notes for this episode over at otschoolhouse.com slash episode 128. And if you're really digging the podcast, be sure to check out our community, the OT Schoolhouse Collaborative, where you can actually earn professional development for listening to this podcast. We also have a lot of other professional development experiences over there, and we even have other community experiences where you can ask me questions directly and get support from myself and other members in the community. So check that out at otschoolhouse.com slash collab. All right. I will see you next time on the OT Schoolhouse podcast. Until then, take care and have a safe week. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening to the OT Schoolhouse podcast. For more ways to help you and your students succeed right now, head on over to otschoolhouse.com. Until next time, class is dismissed.